Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good Monday afternoon. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King Engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes, he does it all in Seattle, producer and engineer. Glad to have you with us. We'll be taking a look at some of the events that occurred over the last several days. But in Seattle, we're also going to uh, have a conversation with Scott Wilder. He's coming to uh, KGNW on Wednesday and Thursday for the Preborn Radiothon. So we'll uh, give you an opportunity to prepare for that. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. All right. Well, a drone attack late Sunday evening that struck a military base in eastern Syria where U.S. troops are stationed left at least six allied Kurdish soldiers dead. Well, that attack hit a training ground at Al-Omar base in Syria's eastern province. Uh, The U.S.-backed Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces said in a statement earlier today. According to the statement, the drone attack, it struck an area where the forces commando units were being trained. No U.S. troops were killed or injured in that attack. The strike was the first significant attack in Syria or Iraq since the U.S. launched strikes over the weekend against Iran-backed militias. Militia fighters have been carrying out assaults on U.S. forces and civilian targets in the region since the breakout of the Israeli-Hamas war in October. The SDF initially blamed Syrian regime-backed mercenaries for Sunday's attack, but after the investigation, uh, the attack, they uh, uh, accused um, Iran of being uh, responsible through Iran-backed militias. The Islamic Resistance, an umbrella group for the Iran-backed uh, Iraqi militias in the country claimed responsibility for Sunday's attack and released a video they claim showed them launching the drone used in that attack. Sunday's um, event came after the U.S. military carried out strikes against Houthi militant targets in Yemen over the weekend. U.S. Central Command forces said Sunday they conducted a self-defense strike against a Houthi land attack cruise missile at approximately 5.30 a.m. Sana'a time. Later at approximately 10.30 a.m., U.S. forces struck four anti-ship cruise missiles in Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen, which they determined presented an imminent threat to U.S. Navy ships and merchant vessels in the Red Sea. Well, Sunday's strike also came a day after the U.S. and Britain launched a wave of strikes against 36 Houthi targets meant to degrade their capabilities. The rebels vowed escalation in reaction to those strikes, with a spokesman for the group vowing to continue its own attacks, no matter the sacrifices it costs us. And it continues. Well, a key faction of Republican and Democratic senators have agreed on a $118.3 billion deal to implement stricter border and immigration policies, a security uh, omnibus that includes aid for Ukraine and Israel. The bill is set for an uncertain floor vote in the coming days. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has pledged to hold a procedural vote on Wednesday, although doubts remain about the legislation's security. Uh, securing the necessary 60 votes. That's according to lead GOP negotiator Senator James Langford. 20 to 25 Republican senators are prepared to assess the specifics. Additionally, a handful of Democrats are expected to vote against it. President Joe Biden expressed support for the agreement in a Sunday night statement, emphasizing the urgency of securing the border which he suddenly discovered. If you believe, as I do, that we must secure the border now, doing nothing is not an option. Wow. Well, the fate of the uh, excuse me, the fate of the border deal is even more uncertain in the House. 
Speaker Mike Johnson announced on NBC Meet the Press that the House would prioritize a $17 billion Israel aid bill over the supplemental funding package. After the plan's details were made public, Mike Johnson took to X, formerly known as Twitter, to reaffirm his condemnation of that deal. I've seen enough. The bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. As the lead Democrat negotiator proclaimed, under this legislation, the border never closes. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. Well, to counter criticism about the bill, Senator Langford, he released the bill's text. Under the proposed legislation, the southern border would immediately shut down to illegal crossings when migrant encounters hit specific daily benchmarks, but only then, addressing a situation in which crossings have sometimes exceeded 10,000 per day. In addition to mandating a border shutdown at 5,000 daily encounters, the bill grants the president the authority to invoke that measure at 4,000 encounters per day. The legislation represents the most ambitious immigration legislation to receive serious congressional consideration in six years. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's office described the legislation as a series of conservative wins, saying the Border Act closes the asylum loophole. Right now, asylum is a magic word that lets aliens stay indefinitely in the United States. The Border Act It places asylum seekers in expedited removal to screen them all within 90 days and deliver final judgments within 180 days, as opposed to the decade or more that is currently in place. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, he criticized Speaker Johnson's decision to prioritize an Israel aid bill over that bipartisan border deal, calling it a cynical attempt to undermine the Senate's bipartisan effort. Johnson denied any influence from former President Donald Trump, asserting he's not calling the shots. I'm the one calling the shots. And it continues. Well, on the heels of the worst month ever recorded at our southern border, a Senate deal is being quietly negotiated by Republican lawmakers desperate to secure more money for Ukraine. They're attempting to modify public concern over the chaos that's reigned at the border since the president took office three years ago. And again, the back and forth will uh, continue. But the funding for Israel and Ukraine is a major issue and perhaps a, a point to deal a deal in the coming days. A wonderful Christian teacher and preacher, Alistair Begg, is a Reformed evangelical. He has been very clear and consistent on his position toward the morality of LGBTQ+, that position being that homosexuality is a sin and that marriage is between a man and a woman. However, in one of his podcasts, he was answering a question from a grandmother who was clearly in deep distress. Her grandson was marrying a transgender individual. She wants to love her grandson, but doesn't want to affirm a union that is anti-biblical. Well, Beg, weighing in uh, the nuances of the situation and hearing her heart's cry, cautioned her with his practical advice. First, the grandmother, along with her husband, had to work out in fear and trembling with God what the ultimate correct action would be. So far, so good. Next, she needed to make her position clear that should she attend the wedding, it was out of love for her grandson, not out of affirmation for the marriage itself or the lifestyle choice associated with it. And finally, and most controversially, he advised her to go to the wedding and even bring a gift. Here's the thing, Beg said, your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. 
end quote. And it is um, a fine line, isn't it? It really is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and don't understand that he is a king, end quote. That's what Begg said. Well, those sparked a larger debate in the Christian community, and the responses ranged from uh, kind but confused to demanding that Begg review and repent of giving drastically wrong advice. A a seminary professor and author, Robert uh, Gagnon, he eloquently pointed out, and I will quote, I guess we need to take a break, so I'll come back to this. Uh, Again, we'll talk about the Christian debate on attending this uh, wedding. Uh, You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about the Christian debate on attending LGBTQ plus weddings after Alistair Begg offered some advice on his podcast that didn't sit well with some members of the Christian community. I'm reminded of John 14, John 17, in which we're told to love one another and that that would be a, a mark of what uh, would reveal to others that we have been with Jesus. But anyway, there was a debate sparked after his um his advice. And it was pretty measured. I I quoted it just a moment ago. Anyway, the larger debate in the Christian community and the response ranged from um, kind of confused, but uh, uh, to demanding that beg review and repent or give uh, for giving drastically wrong advice and canceling him altogether. Well, as uh, Robert Gagnon, who is a seminary professor and author, uh, eloquently points out, and I'm quoting, from a biblical perspective, attendance at a gay or transgender wedding is no more an agree-to-disagree point of practice than is a Christian attending the marriage between a man and his mother or a Christian going to an idol's temple uh, as a non-worshipper to maintain contacts. There is no faithful early Christian leader who would have advocated such attendance. Remember that in a transgender or gay union, the parties declare their intent to sin without remorse as long as they live and invite attendees to celebrate that commitment with them, end quote. For his part, uh, Alistair Begg pretty much doubled down on his position in a sermon entitled Compassion versus Condemnation. And he used the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 1 through 32, to explain his position and his response to the grandmother. He talked about the father in the story celebrating the son, Uh, that he thought was lost, the son returning, make that the example of representing the grandmother showing love to the grandson, and the sin of not giving grace by the older brother, cautioning people not to be legalistic and um, pharisaical. Can't say that quite right, but like the Pharisees, uh, like the brother. With all due respect, this particular biblical example is not correct one to use because the prodigal son comes home, repents, and begs for forgiveness from the father. Well, that's what... um, Some are suggesting makes this a a poor uh, example. The prodigal son didn't expect to be welcomed as a son. He only hoped to be treated with the same dignity granted to the lowest of his father's servants. The prodigal son repentance is a massive key part of the uh, parable. It cannot apply to going to a wedding because, as Professor Gagnon aptly put it, that wedding is the public announcement of their intent to sin without remorse as long as they live. Obeg is a Christian voice who can be trusted and is still sound in his biblical teaching and reasoning. The first piece of advice to the grandmother using discernment from the Lord first and foremost in the decision making is paramount, as is making it clear to the grandson her position on his marriage and 
that she does not affirm his uh, choice, but that doesn't mean she doesn't love him. Well, that said, attending the wedding ceremony because of what marriage truly means and because of what attendance also means would still be celebrating sin. Loving that grandchild, showing him Christ's love can be done in many other ways without causing you to stumble and fall into sin um, in this case. Now, Gagnon suggests that that would be the right approach. Um, And again, when Alistair Begg was initially speaking to the grandmother, he made it very clear that she needed to seek the Lord for guidance in this whole thing. Well, the point is the Christian community has been divided on the subject. His program has been uh, canceled in some areas, and there's been an effort to have other stations cancel him um, as well. Christian podcaster Allie Beth Stuckey, she reminded her audience, we cannot out love God. What she means is that attending the wedding, the ceremony that is antithetical to God's design is conforming to the world's definition of love and compassion. God's love is about truth. He doesn't need uh, us to compromise on his behalf. Jesus did sit with sinners. He broke bread with tax collectors and prostitutes. He reached out to the marginalized in his society, as well as the rich and the affluent. However, he did not condone their sin and often told them to repent. He, Jesus, speaking truth to the sinful woman at the well in John 4, causes her to believe. That truth, told in kindness while not condemning sin, caused a sinner to turn to believe. That is the love of Jesus in the Bible. Owen Strahan, a research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary, he writes of the controversy, Alistair Begg is a good and godly man, and we all falter just like him, yet the stake of public teaching are high, very high indeed. Not many should become teachers for just this reason. James 3.1. Leading a little one astray, for example, is a disastrous reality in Matthew 18.6. None of us preaches or teaches perfectly. Only Jesus hit that mark. Nonetheless, we must all strive to hit the biblical mark and offer confession and repentance publicly, yes, as men in ministry when we fail, end quote. Well, in the case of the um, LGBTQ plus wedding, what makes this particularly difficult is the fact that these are sometimes our loved ones and our friends. However, marriage is the fundamental building block of the family. It has a particular meaning and a gravitas that cannot be taken idly as a Christian. Marriage is the earthly allegory to the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. It's holy and it's sacred. It should not be taken lightly or attended flippantly. And again, the division within the church we would hope would be resolved. But I did read with some glee a number of publications that are focusing on this and making much about the division within the Christian community. It is right to debate this issue, but to do so in a way that does not break fellowship would be the best approach. My prayer is that this could be resolved in a way that Christians would seek the scriptures, would seek God's counsel and how to respond in this situation and extend to grace to those uh, who disagree or who may have misrepresented what the scriptures teach. Well, in other news, President Biden's reelection campaign ended 2023 with nearly $117 million in its coffers, far ahead of his potential GOP rivals as they seek to woo big Republican donors. Former President Trump's campaign committee closed out the year with $33 million, and Nikki Haley, Trump's last major rival for the GOP nomination, ended 23 with $15 million. The campaign totals are only a partial picture. Trump donors contributed a total of $188 million in 2023 to support various um, uh, committees, yet that was offset by paying tens of millions in legal bills 
of the former president. Across the board, Trump and his outside political groups had around $65 million cash on hand by the 1st of January. Haley, who came in second place in New Hampshire and third in Iowa, is still buoying by a steady flow of campaign donation in her uphill fight against Trump. In the week after the New Hampshire primary, her campaign raised more than $5 million, according to a source familiar with that fundraising effort. Her spree hasn't uh, let up as she attended 10 fundraisers in a two-week span. As a a series of donors uh, meetings in New York and Florida, she brought in $2.5 million. She campaigned, or rather her campaign, has pointed out that with Trump as the nominee, down-ballot races for House and Senate could be impacted. Trump campaign National Press Secretary Caroline Levitt in a statement said President Trump's campaign is fueled by small-dollar donors across the country from every background who are sick and tired of crooked Joe Biden's record-high inflation, wide-open borders, crime, and chaos. President Trump continues to dominate Biden in every single battleground poll, and we are more confident than ever that he will take back the White House in November, end quote. Trump has made his legal fights a central theme of his political campaign, accusing Democrats of using, in quotes, ridiculous lawsuits and criminal charges to keep him off the ballot. In the early days of the primary last year, he did see a dramatic rise against um, Republican rivals as he faced more and more indictments. However, the Trump payments to law firms uh, fighting four criminal cases and several civil uh, civil trials caught Haley's attention. He can't beat Joe Biden if he's spending all his time and money on court cases and chaos. She posted on X this week. The Post, um, Iowa, New Hampshire fundraising figures for the Trump campaign haven't been released So it's unclear what boosts he may have seen after his uh, commanding victories in the first two contests. But the trio is still fighting it out. Term limits have been discussed for decades among voters and elected officials, leading many to question whether the possibility of such a change to the American landscape could ever really reach fruition. In September of last year, a poll found that a majority of adults, 87 percent, favor limits on the number of terms every member of Congress is allowed to serve. The Pew Research Center study also found that term limits are almost equally popular among both Republicans and Democrats. Among those who were surveyed, 90 percent of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents said they supported them. Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters largely agreed with 86 percent, giving the nod to limits on how long a lawmaker can serve in either body of Congress. Despite the polling data, a measure introduced last year by Representative Ralph Norman, a Republican out of South Carolina, was killed by the House committee. It was referred to preventing it from making it to the full House for a vote. That bill, House Joint Resolution 11, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, would have limited those serving in the House to three terms for a total of six years and those serving in the Senate to two terms for a total of 12 years. Shortly after the measure was introduced in January of 23, it was referred to the House Judiciary Committee. It wasn't until eight months later in September of the same year that the bill was considered by the committee and shot down by four Republicans and all the Democrats who served on that committee. In total, the measure received 17 yeas and 19 nays. Reactions from Prominent Ohio political figures are pouring in after President Biden announced this week that he will visit East Palestine, Ohio, a year after the major train derailment that devastated the community and sparked calls for him to visit the town. 
Uh, Biden visiting East Palestine at this point is pure politics. Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance posted on X. What is he actually going to do for the people on the ground? That's what matters, not political stunts, end quote. Joe Biden refused to stand with the patriots in East Palestine. When it really mattered, he could have united our country by showing support to a right-leaning community, but instead he ignored them. GOP Senate candidate Bernie Moreno posted on X. Now, a year later, he's showing up for a photo op to help his failing campaign. Well, the Democrats beg to differ. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Just a reminder, in the Seattle area, I had a conversation earlier in the day with Scott Wilder. He's going to be uh, coming to Seattle for a two-day radiothon that's coming up Wednesday and Thursday for Preborn. He and I had a conversation earlier in the day. We'll share that with you later in today's program. Well, just before the break, we were talking about reactions from prominent Ohio uh, political figures um, pouring in after the president announced that he would this week visit East Palestine. Uh, That's in Ohio, a year after the major train derailment that devastated the community and sparked calls for him to visit the town. Well, Governor DeWine has always encouraged the president to visit East Palestine, the Ohio governor's office said in a statement. Actions, of course, speak louder than words. And the fact that it has taken Joe Biden so long to visit East Palestine is a sad reflection of his priorities. The GOP Senate candidate, State Senator Matt Dolan, who has been endorsed by several East Palestine officials, also said it's important that his absence does not obscure the hard work that has been done by local leaders, first responders, and many others who have worked to demand accountability and results for the people of East Palestine. Well, Ohio GOP Senate candidate and Secretary of State Frank LaRose said too little too late for the president. His legacy on East Palestine and every issue facing our nation. We need leaders in Washington who will fight for the people of the Ohio Valley. And that's what I'll do on Day one in the U.S. Senate, making it a campaign opportunity. Too late, President Obion, Ohio, uh, President Biden, Ohio GOP Congressman Jim Jordan posted on X, Ohioans deserve better. But the administration will tout what they believe they have done to help in that area as the backdrop for his trip. Well, Nikki Haley says she doesn't need to win in her home state of South Carolina later this month to keep her campaign for Republican presidential nomination alive. Success means being competitive, closing the gap, making sure we can continue to go forward as we go into Super Tuesday. She emphasized in her uh, announcement, the former two term South Carolina governor who later served as U.N. ambassador and former President Donald Trump's administration faces a pretty steep uphill climb for the GOP nomination against Trump, who's the uh, Commanding frontrunner in the Republican race as he makes his third straight run for the White House. Perhaps some suggest she is um, staying in the race just in case Mr. Uh, Trump is not available to run due to his legal challenges. Well, more than 100 illegal immigrants wanted for crimes, including child sexual assault and murder, were arrested nationwide in a major enforcement action. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, announced on Thursday their enforcement and removal operations arrested 171 unlawful present non-citizens in 25 cities and an operation carried out over a little more than a week, officials said. Over the course of 11 days, our dedicated and committed law enforcement officers zeroed in on removable at-large non-citizens who are wanted for or who are already convicted of horrible, almost unspeakable crimes like assault against children, including sexual assault and murder. Acting ICE Director Patrick Lechlimer uh, said at a news conference, the nationwide enforcement effort 
took place between the 16th and the 28th of last month. I live in frustration. Well, to be almost 70 years old, this isn't what I expected. Those are the words from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, pointed out by Jonathan Turley, the attorney, appearing to resonate with some liberals, but not the way intended by the jurist. Some activists and journalists are beginning to nudge Sotomayor to leave the court in order to be replaced by a younger jurist, much as uh, was done to Justice Stephen Breyer in 2021 and 22. On CNN, journalist Josh Barrow bluntly wondered why Sotomayor remains on the bench when younger jurists could be brought on to guarantee a liberal vote for years to come. He included, um, rather indicated, that many liberals are frustrated with her for not stepping down. I find it a little bit surprising, given what Justice Sotomayor described there about the stakes of what is happening before the Supreme Court, that she's not retired. She's only 69. She's been on the court for 15 years. Sotomayor gave her frank assessment of being tired and frustrated during an appearance at the University of California Berkeley Law School. She suggested that the Supreme Court's conservative majority contributes to her daily burden. It was a notable interview, not only for its content, but for its moderator, UC Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. House Speaker Mike Johnson Uh, He criticized the Senate's bipartisan $118 billion border security and foreign aid package after the text of the agreement was released on Sunday night, stating that the proposal is even worse than expected and would be dead on arrival in the House. And a dangerous atmospheric river storm is blasting California with widespread impacts from heavy rain, damaging winds, potential life-threatening flash flooding. Forecasters have highlighted Southern California, including downtown Los Angeles, for a rare high risk of flash flooding. The storm has already dumped several inches of rain across the region Sunday with more to come today. California Governor Gavin Newsom even declared a state of emergency for several counties in Southern California to support storm response and recovery efforts. The high risk is the highest rung on NOAA's flash flood threat scale and is only issued under the most dire of flooding Forecasts, life-threatening flash or urban flash flooding possible in the uh, high-risk area, NOAA's Weather Prediction Center said. Flash flood warnings covered nearly 11 million people in the greater Los Angeles area through Sunday night. The storm hasn't spared the northern or central sections of the state either, with torrential rain and wind gusts climbing to 70 miles per hour. Nearly 900,000 customers were without power across California as of late Sunday evening. The Golden State mobilized and pre-positioned a record 8,500 emergency responders ready for flooding, landslide, and travel emergencies, according to the governor's office. The state of emergency included Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, San Diego, uh, San Luis Obispo, and Ventura counties. The National Weather Service office in Los Angeles, it continues to use strong language in its forecasts, indicating a significant threat of widespread and dangerous flash flooding through today. Forecasters warn that flooding issues uh, would not be confined to the usually prone areas in the foothills, mountains and burn areas and that numerous mudslides and debris flows are expected. Houthi rebels 
vowed escalation in reaction to U.S. and U.K. strikes launched in Yemen on Sunday. A spokesman for the Iranian-backed groups vowed to continue its campaign of disrupting regional trade, no matter the sacrifices it costs us. The U.S. and U.K. launched a series of attacks in Houthi targets in Yemen this weekend in reaction to a lethal drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan last week. The U.S.-British coalition's bombing of a number of Yemen's provinces will not change our position, and we affirm that our military operations against Israel will continue until the crimes of genocide in Gaza are stopped and the siege on its residents is lifted, no matter the sacrifices it costs us. Houthi a spokesperson wrote on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, our war is moral, and if we had not intervened to support the opposed in Gaza, uh, humanity would not have existed among humans. Hmm. The American-British aggression against Yemen will not go unanswered, and we will meet escalation with escalation, he added. Tensions in the region have skyrocketed since the three U.S. soldiers were killed in the attack in Jordan. A senior Republican on the House Committees for Intelligence and Armed Services is arguing that the Biden administration's foreign policy decisions led to the deaths of three U.S. troops in Jordan last month and that thousands more could be at risk. Representative Austin Scott, the Republican out of Georgia, suggested that he believes the president's military response to Houthi rebels in the Red Sea is the right response, but one that came too late. Asked whether he sees a direct cause and effect between the delayed response and the recent U.S. service members' deaths, Austin firmly said, I do. The Pentagon blamed Iran-backed militants for a drone attack on U.S. troops stationed there near its border with Syria. At least 34 American soldiers were wounded, in addition to the three that were killed. U.S. troops stationed in Iraq and Syria have been attacked at least 150 times since the 7th of October. Um, Iran-backed Houthi rebels have also staged dozens of attacks in the Red Sea on commercial and military ships in what they say is a response to Israel and its support from the U.S. um, and the Biden administration. Since responding with several rounds of airstrikes beginning the 11th of January in coordination with the U.K. and other allies on Houthi positions in Yemen, on Friday the U.S. launched strikes on targets in Iraq and Syria in retaliation for those soldiers' deaths. Scott praised those who conducted the strikes on Friday, saying, I applaud the bravery and skill of U.S. Central Command, who carried out multiple airstrikes against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Corps. A Guards Corps, Quds Forces, and affiliated militia groups today. Those who strike against the United States will face consequences, he said. But he argued that Biden's failure to respond to the initial attacks earlier sent a message of weakness to U.S. adversaries. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Just a reminder, when uh, we uh, go into the 5 o'clock hour in Seattle, a conversation with Scott Wilder. You've got a radiothon coming up. That's Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Preborn. More details on that in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Well, hundreds of Democrats voted Thursday morning to protect illegal immigrants who drink and drive from deportation. And just yesterday, the same group voted to protect them from deportation after committing Social Security fraud. Meanwhile, thousands of Americans are victims of crimes committed by both citizens and non-citizens, including murder and manslaughter, but they were unwilling to put an end to it. Now, honestly, oftentimes legislation has more than one element in it, and it's uh, promoted as one thing or another. 
I don't know what other issues were in that particular legislation, but House Judiciary GOP says you can't make this up. Representative Jerry Nadler thinks we should use your tax dollars to expand public ride sharing programs instead of deporting those who drive drunk. Uh, Another Democrat leader, Jeffries, and 150 House Dems just voted against deporting criminal illegal aliens convicted of drunk driving. Suburban moms take note. Another noted Democrats think illegal alien trespassers who drink and drive should be immune from deportation. The party of no borders, end quote. Well, the House on Wednesday voted on what could very well be the most common sense piece of legislation to come across Congress. Well, we'll see. Under the bill, the No Immigration Benefit for Hamas Terrorist Act, sponsored by Representative Tom McClintock. Terrorists who who, um, helped with the October 7th attacks against Israel may not be admitted into and may be removed from the United States. The bill came close to passing unanimously, but was prevented from doing so by a few holdouts, Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush voting against it. Representative Delia Ramirez voted present. Marina Medvin uh, points out that question, uh, should the should we ban Hamas attacks from the U.S.? Attackers from the U.S., everyone, yes. Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush, no. Governor Kathy Hochul is considering deporting the four illegals who assaulted the NYPD officers. Why were they uh, why were they even here? Some observers asked. Well, the governor weighed in on the shocking footage that showed multiple uh, immigrants pummeling these two NYPD officers last weekend, suggesting that deportation is on the table. They have, however, we understand, left uh, the New York area. Five individuals were arrested on charges of assault of a police officer after video footage shared by the NYPD showed the officers attempting to arrest one of them as others kicked and punched the officer in the head. All of the alleged attackers were then released without bail as police searched for three more suspects. I don't know why. Hochul was uh, confronted about the attack on Wednesday by a reporter who asked her if the immigrants' uh, suspects should be deported. I think that's actually something that should be looked at, she said, noncommittal. I mean, if someone commits a crime against a police officer in the state of New York and they're not here legally, it's definitely worth checking into. Again, not very committal. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will send National Guard troops to the Texas border. The Florida governor announced that he is sending the National Guard from his state to support Texas Governor Greg Abbott's efforts to stop the influx of migrants at the southern border. In a Thursday morning press conference, DeSantis announced he is sending a battalion of up to 1,000 soldiers of the Florida National Guard to Texas. Uh, These... um, uh, individuals don't need uh, photo ID. They can fly on our planes without photo ID. You talk about putting the American people last. It's a total farce. Well, we'll see what happens at the border as the showdown continues to to build and the tension uh, build as well. Representative Ayanna Presley claims Walgreens is racist for closing stores in crime ridden areas. Does she expect them to uh, be a charity? One wonders, how about stopping the criminals instead of blaming the victims of the crime? Well, BizPack uh, Review says, sure, Boston's progressive policies have made it easy for thieves to rob places like Walgreens blind. But if the drugstore doesn't continue putting their employees and customers at risk and smile as their merchandise walks out the door, they are racist, according to squad member Representative Ayanna Presley. As BizPack Review reported, community activists attempted to share Walgreens, rather shame Walgreens, into keeping its Roxbury area doors open, claiming the company had an obligation to the crime-infested community. In 2022, they closed three of their other Boston stores. On Tuesday, Presley accused Walgreens of racial and economic discrimination. Uh, the representative accused Walgreens of um, 
both offenses without offering any help or a solution to the fundamental problem of theft and violence at the facility. D.C. Mayor General Brian Schwalb claims crime cannot be solved by arresting the people who commit the crimes. This is literally his entire job. Well, during a recent panel, the attorney general for Washington, D.C., told residents concerned by the skyrocketing crime rate that his department could not prosecute and arrest our way out of the problem. The attorney general uh, was specifically talking about the epidemic of violent crime, including enormous numbers of carjackings that is currently plaguing the nation's capital. Carrie Severino weighs in, saying during a panel, D.C. residents voiced their frustrations and demanded accountability from the city leaders and addressing the violent crime epidemic that's plaguing our nation's capital. But the D.C. attorney general uh, response, we cannot prosecute and arrest our way out of it. Well, it certainly would help. It would be a start. The United States struck at the Houthi Dome Control Center, destroying 10 attack drones. And the Oregon Supreme Court says Republican state senators who participated in the walkouts are ineligible for reelection. The Supreme Court said Thursday that 10 Republican state senators uh, who staged a record long walkout last year to stall bills on abortion, transgender health care and gun rights cannot run for reelection. The decision upholds the secretary of state's decision to disqualify the senators from the ballot under a voter approved measure aimed at stopping such boycotts. Measure 113 passed by voters in 2022 amended the state constitution to bar lawmakers from reelection if they have more than 10 unexcused absences. This is a constitutional amendment. There are currently only 11 Republicans in the Oregon State Senate. Uh, Drafters of Measure 113, which voters overwhelmingly approved in 2022, I was not among them, intended for its um, uh, to stop walkouts that Republicans as the minority party in the legislature have frequently used. This gives Oregon Republicans all but one month to find new candidates before the March filing deadline for the state's elections. Not very likely they will succeed. President Biden's brother agrees to a GOP subpoena. President's brother, James Biden, has agreed to a, a transcribed interview with House Republicans in February. The House Oversight Committee subpoenaed the, the president's brother, James, as part of its presidential impeachment inquiry and investigation into Hunter and President Joe Biden. Multiple Biden family members have denied involvement in Hunter's business dealings, most notably the president himself, who said in 2019 that he never discussed with his son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Well, Joe Biden joined a meeting in or around the uh, March of 2017 in D.C.'s Four Seasons Hotel with about 10 associates, uh, including the firm's chairman, uh, who has since gone missing in his homeland amid corruption allegations there. Walker also testified that the uh, Biden's initial one million dollars from CEFC was uh, compensation for work performed during the Obama uh, Obama Biden administration. Bank records acquired by Congress indicate that Joe Biden received payments of forty thousand dollars and two hundred thousand dollars from his brother after James received the same amounts weeks beforehand from a law firm associated with the Biden family, which Democrats say came from Joe Biden. The U.S. and Britain continue to try to protect uh, military assets in the Middle East and the national debt, $34 trillion. We will soon spend more on interest than national defense. Bloomberg reports that when the U.S. borrows money, it needs to pay its loans back with interest, just like any other borrower. But America's national debt is currently $34 trillion and rising. Soon the U.S. will need to spend more each year paying interest 
than what it spends on national defense. In 2013, U.S. debt surpassed the country's gross domestic product. Well, as the government's debt grows, the amount of money the government must pay in interest increases. If the government issues a single one-year bond redeemed for $1,050, taxpayers um, have to pay $50 in interest. If the government issued two such bonds, it would end up paying $100 in interest. If tax revenue can't pay the bond, government officials will either have to increase taxes, take out a new bond, increasing the debt and interest even further, or print money. All of these essentially amount to tax increase. The problem for future taxpayers doesn't end here, though. As government tries to borrow more, it has to offer increasingly better deals in order to entice lenders. After a while, promising $1,050 on a $1,000 bond won't convince any new lenders. The government will have to uh, uh, up the ante to $1,060, and you get the ideas. The national debt at $34 trillion will soon spend more on interest than national defense. A Norwegian parliamentary official said that he nominated the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for the Nobel Peace Prize this week after Israeli intelligence alleged that UNRWA employees participated in the Hamas October 7th attack on Israel. At least 12, perhaps as many as 1,200 UNRWA staffers participated in the attack. An Israeli intelligence dossier revealed this last week and 1,200 of their 12,000 staffers in Gaza have ties to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Several countries, including the U.S., have since suspended funding to the organization. Labor MP um, Asmund Akrust said that he nominated UNRWA for its long-term work to provide vital support to Palestinians in the region in general and added that this work has been crucial for over 70 years and even more vital in the last three years. Apparently, mingling with terrorist organization of, uh, organizations is of little consequence. It is also believed that several of the UNRWA schools are hiding tunnels where Hamas officials may be keeping hostages. Nobel Peace Prize. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. In the Seattle area, coming up in our next segment, a conversation I had earlier in the day with Scott Wilder. He's going to be hosting a radiothon Wednesday and Thursday for Preborn. We'll talk more about that. That's coming up in the next segment here in the Seattle area. In Portland, we'll continue to march our way through some of the day's headlines. Well, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has begun constructing a border wall. It's taking action to protect America, he says. Um, Unbeknownst to most Americans, the Texas governor hasn't just been installing razor wire along the border against the administration's wishes. He's also been building a border wall of his own. Uh, Texas made history as the first and only state to build our own border wall, he said. Construction is ongoing. We will not back down from our efforts to secure the border. Again, that showdown continuing. Former President Trump has edged out President Biden in the latest CNN poll. Just the news reports that the former president is ahead of President Biden in a potential White House rematch, according to a new CNN poll. Of course, we're um, months away from the actual general election and we don't even have a nominee yet. But nonetheless, most Biden supporters say that they are uh, voting against Trump rather than for the current president. As the presidential primaries syndicate that the general election this fall will likely end up being a 2020 rematch. Forty nine percent of registered voters said that they would vote for Trump while 45% said they would vote for 
uh, Biden. Of the people who voiced support for Trump, 32 percent said that they would be voting for Biden, while 68 percent said that they would support him as a way to cast their ballot against Trump. Meanwhile, of the Trump supporters, 60 percent said that they would be voting for Trump, while 40 percent said they would be voting against Biden. Uh, The president's uh, overall disapproval rating is 68 percent. Well, Connecticut Democrat Governor Ned Lamont says his state plans on becoming the first one to cancel medical debt, freeing eligible residents from roughly $1 billion in medical bills by using $6.5 million from the COVID-era America Rescue Plan Act. Lamont plans to use the 2021 Rescue Plan funds to contract with a nonprofit organization to buy medical debt and eliminate uh, eliminate it at the fraction of the cost. The way this works is that the nonprofit buys the debt, just like for debt, uh, for-profit debt collection firms do, but instead of then pursuing the collection of the debt from the individuals, the nonprofit firm just notifies the individuals that their debt has been canceled. Well, residents whose medical debt equals 5% or more of their annual income or whose Household income is up to 400% of the federal poverty line, or about $125,000 in 2024, are eligible. Those who qualify do not need to apply. They will receive letters in the mail saying their debt has been eliminated as soon as the summer. More than one in 10 Connecticut residents has medical debt in collections. Western Oregon University plans to replace D and F grades with no credit. The Oregon University announced they will abandon failing letter grades, citing a GPA fixation that negatively impacts students. Western Oregon University issued a news release earlier this month that revealed the school would be replacing D minus and F grades with no credit to discourage undergrads from dropping out. Students who do not earn a passing grade in their course will be required to repeat the course and demonstrate proficiency. The uh, difference is that the grade at... um, of NC will not negatively impact students' GPAs. Well, the uh, topic of grade inflation remains a pressing concern in higher education today. In December of last year, it was revealed that 79% of the grades given out at Yale University in the 2022-23 academic year were A's. At Harvard, an identical 79% of grades were A's in the 2020-2021 academic year, an increase of over 20% in the last Decade. Now, apparently these are unearned um, A's. Well, a study claims merit-based hiring practices are unfair. Merit-based. Most employers hire individuals based on their qualifications. But a new study has claimed the process may be unfair. A study published in an American Psychological Association journal are now claiming that socioeconomic disparities should be the focus when seeking potential employees, whether or not they're proficient and can do the work. Apparently, researchers conducted five experiments where participants were given background information about the two types of candidates, revealing those who learned about merit-based hiring perceived it as less fair perceived it as, whether or not it actually is, the study concluded that merit-based hiring fuels racial inequality as members of marginalized racial groups tend to experience socioeconomic disadvantages more often than members of privileged racial groups. Merit-based hiring is when an employer hires a candidate solely on their resume achievements, including higher education and their past career advancement. Now, if we um, deflate grades and people 
aren't given false grades. Maybe that'll level the playing field just a bit. But this is the mess we're in. The Los Angeles Times suggests nobody should be allowed to make more than $20 million in a lifetime. Now, I probably won't make anything near $20 million, so it doesn't have a direct impact on me, but maybe it does you. Every billionaire is a policy failure. That's a quote from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez exemplified this model when she entered politics and famously wore the slogan tax the rich on her gown at the Meta Gala. As a political philosopher, I suppose this um, uh, this is true for her. Um, it's called limitarianism in which societies define a cap on how much personal wealth an individual can accumulate. But we should be morally more ambitious than only wanting to get rid of the fortunes that are more than a billion dollars. If we look carefully at the reasons for limiting personal wealth, we might well agree on a much lower maximum limit. Excess wealth keeps the poor in poverty while inequality grows, she argues. Research shows that lion's share of the gains that that economies wield go to those who already have the most, while only a tiny fraction goes to those who have the least. Another important reason is that excess wealth undermines democracy. As I've found in my research, she says, extreme wealth allows the super rich to spend fortunes on lobbying or to donate huge sums to support political candidates and parties, which gives them a bigger voice in political decisions. Perhaps the political upper limit should be 20 million, but surely not 1 billion. Again, the wisdom of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All right, coming up um, in Seattle, a conversation with Scott Wilder. He is going to be representing P- uh, Preborn in a radiothon on Wednesday and Thursday. We'll tell you more about that. And if you're unfamiliar with the ministry, you'll want to learn more. Here in Portland, we'll continue our uh, march through some of the uh, the weekend's headlines as well. So, that's what's up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you probably know by now, over the next couple of days, you have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of women and their children through the Preborn Radiothon. And I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about that with Scott Wilder, who'll be hosting these next couple of days. Scott and I go way back. Uh, with uh, with radio, and I'm delighted that he is going to give all of us an opportunity to really consider what God is doing in our country and how he's calling us to partner in the work of preborn and supporting women and their children. Scott Wilder, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I, I've said so many wonderful things about you uh, behind your back as well as <laughs> to your face. So it's, it's great to be with you again, especially for such an important uh, cause, not only for time, but for eternity. So we're, we're very excited about what we'll be able to do again in the next couple of days, uh, just in a little tiny window to a really big thing. Yeah, a really big thing. I, I appreciate your putting that into perspective. You know, I think some of us imagined that with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, we could just uh, shake the dust off of our feet. The work is done, but there is so much yet to be done. And I think we're starting now to gain some perspective uh, on that. Talk a bit about preborn and how it is ministering to women who find themselves in an unexpected, unplanned situation uh, with their children. You know, for more than 17 years, Preborn has done this, provided ultrasounds for girls and women who are, you know, facing the choice. It really is a life and death choice. And the whole world, everything is pushing in the other direction. You know, I've said before, this is an inside job. You know, if Mm -hmm. we don't do it, it won't be done. The world joins us to 
build cinder block houses and dig wells and purify water and feed the naked and clothe or their <laughs> feed the hungry and the naked and clothe uh, the uh, naked. They'll join us in all those things that they're motivated differently than we are, but they won't join us in this. Uh, they for so long uh, toasted, you know, what we mourned. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. And I think it's sadly, even many Christians didn't really understand what the overturning of Roe versus Wade was uh, going to mean. That's why we've always argued this is not something that can be settled in law or with bans. This is a matter of the heart, and only God changes a heart. And so you, you've seen what it's done. It's returned it all to the uh, states, which is what overturning Roe versus Wade does. It returns the decision of the states. And look at where we are uh, in Oregon. Look at where we are in the state of Washington. Look at where we are in California. The demand for abortions is greater than ever. And what that means is the need to tell the truth, which is told in an ultrasound, is greater than ever. And so that's all we're talking about, is providing the truth at the most important time with no judgment, not not wagging a finger in someone's face, but putting an arm around the shoulder and saying, hey, here's the truth. We're here for you. We support you. And the statistics, Georgine, are amazing. More than 83% of the time, a girl, when she sees her baby, hears her baby's heartbeat, she chooses life. And so what I love to be able to say is, hey, provide the ultrasound with preborn. Say a prayer. Leave it there. And let God do the rest. And and that's that's really what we're doing uh, this week is we're doing what we've done before again and again and again, providing ultrasounds for girls and women so they might know the truth and make the best possible choice, knowing we do that more than 83% of the time, that choice is going to be a choice for life. Absolutely. And I think it's important to point out, you know, the pro-life movement has for years been accused of only being concerned about the baby. They're not concerned about the mother. This is a demonstration of the heart of the pro-life movement. It's the heart of the gospel, extending the love of Christ into our community, putting our arm, as you described it, around that mother, giving her an opportunity to see, to witness for herself the truth of the life she is carrying within her. And that state-of-the-art ultrasound machine uh, provides her that opportunity. And so many women, when they see that, uh, that picture of the child in utero, their heart is softened and they mm-hmm. recognize and respond to the truth. Now, how will our listeners have an opportunity to help over these next couple of days? Sure. I mean, many people already know. You already know about it. You've heard about it. You thought about it. You prayed about it. You talked about it. I mean, we've done it before this time of year, every year. So the, the, you already know. I'll give you the phone number. It's 88. It's 88. Sorry. It's 833 Eight five zero two 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 nine eight three three eight five zero baby is what that spells eight three three eight five zero two 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 nine or you simply go to click on the preborn banner when you go to the word seattle dot com and we're just excited to do it we're we're so thankful for the opportunity again I used to say when I was on Georgine that side of the microphone for low those many years I would say hey what kind of friend would I be if I didn't give you the opportunity to do this wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, we're, 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 it's unapologetically that we give you the chance to do this again, knowing that uh, it's really ours to do. So we're excited about it. We only have a couple of days to make a big difference, but you don't have to make a lot of noise to make the biggest difference for life. And so we're giving people the opportunity 
to be a hero for life today and this week. Oh, absolutely. You can contribute to an ultrasound that will be placed in one of the pregnancy centers uh, in the communities. Uh, or you can uh, perhaps if you're in a situation where you can underwrite the entire cost of a machine, you'll have the opportunity to do that. Uh, and also to remember that the gospel is being presented as well. Preborn has a great track record mm-hmm. with presenting the gospel uh, to women who find themselves in, in very challenging circumstances and responding in the affirmative. Mm-hmm. So this really is a holistic ministry that deals with the physical uh, needs, but also the spiritual needs of these women as well. It's true. And uh, more than a thousand first time decisions for Christ every single week in the last year, uh, more than a thousand. Uh, now, with all due respect to the Greg Lorries of the world and the mega pastors or mega church folks, I don't know any facility that brings first time decisions for Christ at the level of a thousand every single week. But that does happen. At preborn, so it ultimately is that not just for time, but also for eternity. Not just saving babies, but also saving souls. And every twenty-eight dollars can do that. So many people have said, "I want to save a baby a month for less than a dollar a day." Twenty-eight dollars a month does that. So again, at that same phone number, eight three three eight five zero two 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 nine, or maybe easier to remember, and certainly it's quicker. Uh, though not a lot quicker, it's still pretty quick <laughs> when you make the phone call. But you go online, you click on the preborn banner at the word Seattle.com. You know, I don't know if our listeners are aware of the fact that you're you're kind of a big deal. Why is this important to you? I mean, there are a lot of things that you could give your time to, you could extend your talent to. Why is this important to you? Yeah, uh, let me say that, that I, I'm a native Texan, um, native Dallasite. Um, the Roe versus Wade decision the Wade of Roe versus Wade was our district attorney in Dallas. So his name was Henry Wade. So this all began in Dallas. It all began where I was born. Uh, all began where I live right now. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the facility that took, where all this took place was the Ruth Street Women's Center. And the, the Ruth Street Women's Clinic was on Ruth Street, R-O-U-T-H, Ruth Street Women's uh, Clinic, that's where all the abortions in Dallas were taking place. And that's where, as a junior hire, uh, I would go with my uh, my friends, and we would stand on the street corner there on the sidewalk, public property, and, you know, not make not with bullhorns, not with signs, but just pray. And so for my whole life, I mean, you know, I'm 62, but for my whole life, uh, this has been something that's important to me, not to keep anyone from doing something, not to take away anything, not to believe in what I'm not to express what I'm against, but to express what I'm for. Uh, and I'm for uh, the protection of the unborn. And I'm for women having all the information they can have as they make this important decision. I'm, it's not my nature to go in and twist arms and, you know, sort of verbally beat someone to submission. That's not my nature. I'm, I can't do that. But this is something we all can do. Just provide ultrasound, say a prayer, leave it there. God will do the rest, uh, either peacefully, prayerfully, quietly. You don't you don't have to uh, you know argue with anybody over the Thanksgiving dinner table. You know, oh look, our, our loved ones, people in our own even nuclear families, feel very differently about this, and perhaps have even been on the other side of this issue in action, uh, indeed, not just in word, but but we still know what the proper posi- position is on this. We still know what God uh, expects of us. And then there's for us to uh, stand up, you know, our, 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 in our studio in Dallas, 
we have a calligraphy thing that is our life verse, and it's Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to, to do. do. Yes, yes. And it is, and we believe it's all about the doing. The doing is the proof that the feeling is real. So if you've ever said, I'm pro-life, or I believe this, or I believe that, uh, it is all in the doing. The Good Samaritan is remembered for what he did, not for how he felt, not for what he thought, not for what he was outraged by, not for how he changed his, I don't know, uh, whatever on social media for a month or so. Uh, he's remembered for what he did. And, and uh, the other men in that story are also remembered for what they didn't do. And, and so I, I just really do believe we are God's handiwork. We have been created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, to do good works, which ones the ones God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, and Scott, we believe that this is that. Absolutely. Scott, we so appreciate your coming and leading this effort. And it's been a, a delight for me to just catch up with you again. Again, we want to encourage our listeners, Wednesday and Thursday, you have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of families and really change the shape of the, of the world. Scott Wilder, thanks so much. My pleasure. Well, a bill to deport DUI illegals passed the House with 59 Democrat votes. It's a pretty rare moment these days. When legislation passes the rather hyper-partisan House with anything more than a razor-thin majority, but that's exactly what happened when 59 House Democrats joined their Republican colleagues to pass a bill that calls for the deportation of illegal immigrants who are caught driving under the influence. The bill passed 274 to 150, with all 150 uh, votes coming from the uh, Democrats and uh, 274 plus 59 House Democrats voting in favor. In the United States, someone dies in a crash with an impaired driver every 45 minutes. That's a quote from Alabama Republican Barry Moore. He introduced the bill. I lost two of my young newlywed constituents to an illegal immigrant driving under the influence of alcohol, he said. This isn't a frivolous measure. Just last month, an illegal alien from El Salvador, a man who'd already been arrested and deported multiple times, killed a mother and her son while driving drunk in Boulder, Colorado. Meanwhile, inside the White House, uh, fear over President Biden's age is uh, continuing. It's not just the majority of the American public who see the president's advanced age as a problem. Apparently, those working in the White House hold the same opinion. James O'Keefe, the former CEO of Project Veritas, has released new undercover videos in which several White House staffers expressed fears that Biden's age is a real problem. One video features a top White House cyber official who says Biden is definitely slowing down. He later says, I'm just telling you what I've heard. They've really concerned about it. Furthermore, I think I think they need to get rid of him and Kamala Harris. But no one in modern history has ever said, like, we're not going to renominate the president for a second term. Those were all quotes. Overall, O'Keefe's reporting appears to confirm what many have long suspected. The Democrats are stuck in the conundrum of Biden being too old and Kamala Harris being too unpopular. And yet they can't get rid of either of them. The Republicans have issues of their own. We'll get into that another day. Well, AI is making fake news even faker, if that's possible. As if we didn't already distrust the media, at least polls seem to indicate that's the case. Now we have one more reason to do so. Generative artificial intelligence. Its arrival on the scene is ramped up in uh, the productivity of the a human who use it, humans who use it, but its use among journalists raises all sorts of issues about fairness and bias. 
AI is most visible in journalism when things go wrong, reports The Verge. Some newsrooms have published AI articles riddled with errors or offensive suggestions. There's widespread anxiety that AI will be used to replace journalists on the cheap. Well, clearly the genie is already out of that bottle. NewsGuard, who's, um, who seems to be guarding folks from hearing news without a, a bias, claims to have so far identified 676 AI-generated news and information sites operating with little to no human oversight. And it's not just fringy news organizations. PJ Media's Paula Boyard, she writes, popular sites like Sports Illustrated, BuzzFeed, CNET, and Gannett have all been caught using AI in recent months. The Associated Press admits it uses AI to generate some stories, but it, um, uh, be it at least um, lets readers know that AI is being used to assist in creating the content, or at least the AP does, uh, does right now. We suspect it's only a matter of time before AI-generated news becomes the rule rather than the exception. It's all the bottom line, apparently. International lawsuits threaten Americans' 2A Second Amendment rights. America's Second Amendment is deemed as a threat to the rest of the world. At least, that's the narrative being used by the anti-gun group Global Action on Gun Violence, GAGV, if you will. The new organization recently raised a lawsuit representing Mexico against American firearms manufacturers and gun dealers over the claim that they are fueling cartel violence in Mexico. Well, GAGV sees this as a potential new angle to exert international pressure on the U.S. to further limit Americans' Second Amendment rights in its lawsuit. The uh, organization asserts that U.S. firearms policy violates its human rights obligations, This is an underhanded tactic to target American firearm manufacturers and blame them for the criminal actions of others. It seeks to further the entirety, uh, entirely false claim that guns and not the individuals wielding those guns are responsible for crimes. Iranian uh, IRGC commanders went into hiding as the Biden administration continued to leak details of retaliatory strikes. The House Judiciary Committee subpoenaed Fannie Willis and the FBI deleted records related to an anti-Catholic memo, the GOP lawmakers are saying. Gavin Newsom saw a target shoplifting and asked why no one stopped it. His cashier blamed the governor without realizing who he was. Of course, he was the governor. A pen lecturer is behind grotesque anti-Semitic cartoons that have popped up. And Harvard is hosting a Gathering to Breathe and Heal event to help students grieve Claudine Gay's ouster. Now she was just, uh, she resigned. Other issues that are happening on campus in which students' uh, life and education is uh, genuinely in danger doesn't really matter, apparently. Well, the border bill is as bad as we thought. Details of the highly secretive Senate border bill finally became public yesterday. The legislation, which checks in at 370 pages and which might more accurately be called the Joe Biden reelection lifetime bill, at least critics suggest that might be the case, is as bad as expected, they say. Among the bill's deceptive ingredients, $20 billion for border security, the end of Biden's catch and release policy and expansion of detention capacity for families, a raising of asylum standards and fast tracking of asylum claims, 50,000 new visas over five years and $650 million to expand the border wall. Oh, and the $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel and $10 billion for Gaza. We can't make this stuff up. James Langford, who ostensibly led Republican efforts to craft the bill, but who talks about it as if he's the subject of a hostage video, tried to 
pitched the bill on Fox News this morning. Some people are thinking that this is somehow like counting 5,000 people in every day and releasing them, he said, of the bill's most objectionable components. That's absurd. We changed the asylum laws. We increased detention beds. We doubled the deportation flights and we added ankle monitors. There's uh, all the things that we built into this to make this much stronger system. Well, all of this, of course, assumes that the administration will actually live up to its end of the bargain. And if history is any guide, it won't. Just ask uh, Ronald Reagan how Democrats do immigration deals. I've seen enough, said House Speaker Mike Johnson on X last night in response to it all. This bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. On top of all this, a House impeachment vote in Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas might come as soon as tomorrow. It is a mess in Washington. Biden wins South Carolina. Joe Biden won the South Carolina Democrat primary bigly as he hauled in 96 percent of the votes based on the percentage of the vote. It's a resounding victory. However, as the saying goes, the devil is in the details. Voter turnout was abysmal with just four percent of voters statewide bothering to cast just 131,870 ballots. Now, it may be because he didn't have a contender or it was a done deal, but that's the lowest Democrat turnout in the past three primaries. Back in 2020, when Biden won the Palmetto State's Democrat primary and revived his campaign, 16 percent of voters turned out to cast a ballot. Clearly, Democrat voter enthusiasm for Biden has significantly diminished. Or it could, again, just be his it was the only name on the ballot. They didn't feel the necessity of casting a ballot for a done deal. We'll see in November what all of this actually means. A former Trump official has died five days after a D.C. carjacking. Last week, it was reported on the critical wounding of Mike Gill, a married father of three and a former Trump administration official who was left fighting for his life after um, having been shot in the head during an attempted carjacking. Also shot during the crime spree was 35-year-old Alberto Vasquez Jr., himself a father of two. Vasquez died of his wounds, and now Gill has succumbed as well. That the alleged murderer, 28-year-old Artel Cunningham, was later shot and killed during a confrontation with D.C. police officers is surely a little consolation to the families of Gill and Vasquez. Last week, a statement from the Gill family was heart-wrenching. Mike, his... um, Catalyst for unity and friendship. The most important thing about Mike that all of his friends know is how much he loves his family and how proud he is of his three children. On Saturday, his widow, Christina, added his sudden departure has left a void in our lives that can never be filled. The nation's capital has seen carjackings more than double from 2022 to 2023 to 950 incidents. And just the news reports, the incident comes after the Justice Department er, Department rather earlier this month announced it would send more resources to combat violent crime in Washington, D.C. Too little, too late for this soft on crime district. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York City is putting illegal migrants on welfare. A $53 million pilot program is being launched in New York City specifically for migrants, migrant families in the country illegally, establishing a food welfare program similar to the state's food stamp program. Illegal alien families who sign up will be given a prepaid card that can only be used to buy goods um, 
at uh, bodegas, grocery stores, and supermarkets. The program would give a migrant family of four upwards of $1,000 a month, or roughly $35 a day. The city's current program, which uh, this new one will replace, gives migrants roughly $11 uh, daily for meals. So on the one hand, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is complaining that the city will be destroyed if the influx of illegal aliens continues into the self-appointed sanctuary city. But on the other hand, his office is touting this costly migrant welfare program that will surely attract even more. And they wonder why leadership is failing. Well, the University of Pennsylvania is still anti-Semitic. It's as if the university has no shame in the wake of the resignation of its former president, Liz McGill, whose indefensible defense of anti-Semitism on campus during House testimony in December was roundly rebuked. Uh, We find that the university's penchant for Jew hating is alive and well, at least among faculty. As the Washington Free Beacon reported, the lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School of Communications has published several anti-Semitic cartoons since Hamas's October 7th attack, including one that depicts Zionists sipping Gazan blood from wine glasses, a version of the ancient blood libel employed in anti-Semitic propaganda that accused Jews of using the blood of Christian children for baking matzah and other rituals. This is some really crude, tasteless work, and its author, Dwayne Booth, has been with Penn since 2015. Booth, as the Free Beacon notes, publishes political cartoons under his pen name, Mr. Fish, adding that his work inclu- works rather include a, a photo of emaciated Jews in a Nazi concentration camp holding signs bearing slogans such as Free Palestine, and another showing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as a bloodied, red-eyed butcher holding a long knife, and a crumpled Palestinian flag. We can only hope that UPenn's wealthy benefactors remain disgusted by what they see and hear. Well, China will move to Taiwan soon. Well, at least that's what uh, last Thursday, Admiral Samuel J. Papero was asked during his um, Senate confirmation hearing for taking over the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command about the threat level China poses toward Taiwan. Well, he noted that China's military threat has been increasing and he sees the potential of an attack coming before 2027, the date Beijing has set for its military to be ready to take control of the island nation. However, he observed that the 2027 date has more to do with it being the 100th anniversary of the People's Liberation Army. He added, in fact, I think they're working to be ready every day and they could go and we've got to be constantly vigilant. There's no holiday between now and when they may go. The U.S. military must be ready now, next week, next month and in the decades to come to deter any attack, Pompero advised. Well, the FBI and the ATF are investigating a case of arson that happened a week ago when two fires were set in a building that houses the offices of the conservative organization Center of the American Experiment, John um, Hinderaker, the center's president and prominent blogger at Powerline, explained they targeted conservative organizations. They didn't firebomb the chiropractors or psychologists or the manufacturers alliance. Minnesota Democrat Governor Tim Walls was quick to recognize the motive for the arson as political and condemned it. Political violence and intimidation have no place in Minnesota, he said on social media. I'm confident that local, state and federal law enforcement will get to the bottom of this unacceptable act. A security camera has apparently captured footage of two suspects engaged in the arson. Hopefully these arsonists are quickly arrested and tried for their anti-conservative hate crime.
Well, the House Freedom Caucus lashed out at the Senate border deal, calling it a dumpster fire. Republican governors are backing Texas at the border, saying we're doing the job the federal government won't. An Oklahoma principal who moonlights as a drag queen has resigned. And Canada hits pause on its assisted suicide program for the mentally ill because they don't have enough doctors. Boeing flagged potential delays after a supplier found another problem with some 737 fuselages. And China's economic downward spiral continues apace. Well, on this day in history, 1917, the U.S. Congress passes over President Woodrow Wilson's veto, an act severely curtailing Asian immigration. 1937, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he proposes increasing the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices. The proposal, which fails in Congress, drew accusations that Roosevelt was attempting to pack the nation's highest court. 1958, Gamal Abdel Nasser is formally uh, nominated to become the first president of the new United Arab Republic, the Union of Egypt and Syria, which would uh, hold until 1961. 1971, Apollo 14 astronauts Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell, they step onto the surface of the moon in the first of two lunar excursions. On this day in history, 1983, former Nazi Gestapo officer Klaus Barbie, expelled from Bolivia, is brought to Lyon, France, to stand trial. He would be convicted and sentenced to life in prison. 1988, the Arizona House impeaches Republican Governor Evan Meacham, setting the stage for his trial in the state Senate, where he would be convicted of obstructing justice and misusing state funds allegedly funneled to his Pontiac dealership. 1989, the Soviet Union announces that all but a small rear guard contingent of its troops has left Afghanistan. 1993, President Bill Clinton signs the Family and Medical Leave Act, granting workers up to 12 weeks unpaid leave for family emergencies. 2001, four disciples of Osama bin Laden go on trial in New York City in the 1998 bombings of two U.S. embassies in Africa. The four would be convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. 2002, the federal grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, indicted John Walker Lind on 10 charges, alleging he was trained by Osama bin Laden's terror network and then conspired with the Taliban to kill Americans. Lind later would plead guilty to lesser offenses and would be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. 2009, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg undergoes surgery for pancreatic cancer. Also in 2009, USA Swimming suspends Olympic gold medalist Michael Phelps for three months after a photo showing him inhaling from a marijuana pipe goes public. 2014, a U.N. Human Rights Committee denounces the Vatican for adopting policies that it says allowed priests to rape and molest tens of thousands of children over decades. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, former sports doctor Larry Nasser receives his third long prison sentence 40 to 125 years for molesting young athletes at an elite Michigan gymnastics club. Well, Oregon lawmakers met today to start the 2024 legislative session. It's a short session and it will run through March the 10th at the latest. Well, last week, Oregon lawmakers, legislative leaders outlined their priorities for the session. Housing, homelessness and addiction issues all topped the list. 
with work also planned on economic issues like the state's semiconductor industry and the downtown Portland business scene. Governor Tina Kotek said her number one focus will be spurring housing production across the state, which she said is the ultimate solution to homelessness issues. She pointed to Senate Bill 1537, which she described as a comprehensive approach to jumpstart housing production. It will establish a housing accountability and production office tasked with having build-ready plans and model codes for communities to adopt, serving as an intermediary for building the building industry. Oregonians know the status quo is not working, she said. This bill is a pathway to production, end quote. Well, the bill will also include a one uh, a one time tool to allow cities to expand their urban growth boundaries to free up more land for affordable housing if they can meet certain criteria. Although Kotex stressed that it's just one part of the package, the tool requires 30 percent of new development within the expansion area to be affordable. She noted, which um, differentiates it from similar efforts that fell short in previous session. Land supply is part of the uh, conversation we need to have, she said. The package also features climate incentives, the governor said, along with a $500 million investment from existing state resources to fund financing for infrastructure and site acquisition. She said the bill is the product of months of effort. And while she expects some technical changes as it works its way through the legislative process, it's imperative that it ultimately passes She said um, she's also requested $65 million to make sure existing homeless shelters keep operating, as well as $35 million to invest in homelessness prevention measures like rent assistance. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, Oregon's short session began today. It's going to focus on housing, drug crisis, uh, first and foremost, but there are other issues as well. We're talking about the governor's uh, plan. Asked about proposed legislation to reform Measure 110 and recriminalize drugs. The governor said she thought lawmakers are moving the right direction, but said her current focus is on making sure the state has resources and capacity for treatment programs. Senate President Rob Wagner, Majority Leader Katie Lieber, and Minority Leader Tim Knope also put the spotlight on housing and the drug crisis. We will be focused on reducing homelessness, increasing affordable housing, improving public health and safety, and strengthening our schools and the economy, Lieber said in a statement. Knope's uh, call for a major uh, overhaul of Measure 110 with enhanced penalties for drug dealers, including raising penalties for drug dealers who sell to buyers who later overdose and die. Asked about the possibility of another Republican walkout, he said Republicans aren't taking anything off the table. He noted that the Oregon Supreme Court decision on the Measure 113 is expected Thursday, but said Republicans will win either way because the court will either uphold their challenge or if it doesn't, our members literally have no reason to show up. When asked if there's um, an issue where the two parties are very far apart at the moment, he said not on issues that are going to be addressed in this session. House Speaker Dan Rayfield said House Democrats will focus on legislation to keep people housed and build more housing and work on making sure the state's comprehensive plan addresses the issues of addiction. He said that there's also a $50 million investment in the works for Oregon's semiconductor industry. We're in a good position to tackle these issues. The state has budgeted well over the years. Uh, Redford Field went on to say, well, House Minority Leader 
Uh, Jeff um, Helfrich, he labeled Measure 110 the biggest crisis we're facing right now and said he wanted to focus on solutions to fix the controversial legislation, accountability through the criminal justice system. But we also have to have that compassionate care. And I believe those are the two things that are going to drive the conversation on Measure 110. Governor Kotek, who has been noncommittal on potential recriminalization of small amounts of drug possession as part of Measure 110's reform, said she would look to see what else is included in the package. Recriminalization and isolation, she says, uh, is missing the point. Well, House Minority Leader Julie Fahey said the session would tackle what she identified as four key barriers to improving the housing supply, infrastructure funding, land supply, regulatory barriers, and financing. She added that, Fighting community addiction means expanding treatment facilities and incentivizing workers, either through higher pay, apprentice programs, or other initiatives. Well, the short session length means there won't be time to tackle every pressing issue. And Rayfield and Helfrich um, said that broader transportation infrastructure and tolling issues are likely to be taken up in the 2025 session, with early conversations happening during the 2024 gathering. Well, the new poll commissioned by the Oregon Realtors shows that Oregon voters view housing costs and availability as the top issue facing the state. The survey of 694 registered Oregon voters conducted by national firm American Strategies found that 29 percent believe housing affordability and availability should be the top concern for Governor Tina Kotek and the legislature during the upcoming session, which begins on Monday. But of course, it won't. Respondents identified housing as their top concern above homelessness, which a fourth of respondents rated as the top issue and crime, which 15 percent said was the biggest problem facing the state. That differs from several statewide and Portland area polls from the last two years that consistently found homelessness to be the top policy concern for Oregon voters. A total of 84 percent of respondents said that they were moderately or very concerned about the rent and mortgage prices. Housing affordability as seen as a big is seen as a big problem all across the state among all demographic groups be you young be you old be you democrat or republican that's a quick a quote rather from joe good be you i've never quite heard that together he's of american strategies said at a press conference on friday it is a top of mind issue for all oregon voters because it affects all oregon voters but again the legislature will be very short and very narrow in its focus Meanwhile, lawmakers have authored House Joint Resolution 201, which would create Oregon's first ever statewide property tax and use it to fund public safety. House Joint Resolution 201 would allow this uh, statewide tax to be exempt from current limits on property taxes, Measure 5's uh, rate limit and Measure 50's. Uh, assessment limit. That's um, 1992 and 97, respectively. So there would be no limit whatsoever on how high property taxes could go. That's the state property tax as opposed to the county. House Joint Resolution 201 would be a referral to voters. Um, it uh, reads, proposes an amendment to the Oregon Constitution requiring the Legislative Assembly to create an administrative authority for funding public safety in this state. Directs the Legislative Assembly to impose a state property tax to fund public safety in the state. Allows the Legislative Assembly to delegate to the Administrative Authority the authority to implement the tax. Provides that the tax would not be subject to Article 6, Section 11 of the Oregon Constitution, Ballot 50, 1997, or Article 6. Um, six 
Section 11B of the Oregon Constitution, Ballot Measure 5, 1990, refers the proposed amendment to the people for their approval or rejection at the next regular general election. We'll be ready for this surprise hearing whenever it's called. Follow um, both the... um, Uh, chambers in the legislature to see when the bill is up uh, for an official hearing. The politicians are using the super fast, super short February schedule to push this unpopular tax through the session when the people are not paying attention. So I encourage you to pay attention with limited public notices. Their actions clearly show that they don't uh, want you to be what want you at the hearings or to hear about it. And that is 100 percent wrong. Well, higher property taxes hit people on fixed incomes, seniors and the disabled uh, because they are unable to increase what they earn. A statewide property tax will throw seniors and disabled out of their homes at a time when housing is a major issue, make Oregon's affordable housing crisis even more unaffordable, and make Oregon one of the higher property tax states in America, make housing unaffordable for young first-time homebuyers, and encourage endless taxation under Senate um, Joint Resolution 201. It removes the constitutional limits and projections. So you can uh, follow uh, for more information on this. Uh, at Oregon Catalyst or Oregon Watchdog, as they will provide information as to when this will um, show up on uh, the docket. Well, Portland was blindsided by the second largest single day snowstorm in the city's history. Hundreds um, on February 22nd, Portland was blindsided um, back in 2023. Hundreds of people were forced to abandon their cars along impassable city streets, interstate highways, uh, that evening and many more abandoned their responsibilities to play in the snow, uh, which was piled nearly a foot high in the morning to abandon their cars along uh, impassable areas. Well, while Portland isn't expected to see another massive snowstorm in February of 24, according to meteorologists, they said that another unusual single day snowstorm is possible. Now, I'm quoting from uh, Coin Six, Josh Kozart, their meteorologist, he says Portland seeing another February snowstorm or Arctic blast isn't out of the question. Right now, nothing points us in that direction, so I'm not sure why he's bringing it up. But historically, we've seen some pretty intense winter storms move through western Oregon and Washington during the second month of the year. Portland typically gets warmer in February. Just the other day was an example of that, with an average daytime high of 52 degrees. However, the coldest temperature ever recorded in Portland also happened in February. On February 2nd, 1950, Portland temperatures plummeted to a record minus three degrees. However, as of February 1st and today, February 5th, the National Oceanic Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center is forecasting slightly warmer and drier weather for the Pacific Northwest this February. Well, I hope so. I can put my... uh, boots away. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.